Adventures in Theater History. This is part four of the story about Ricketts Circus and the Capital City. If you haven't listened to the first three installments yet, you'll certainly want to go back and do so. It will provide all the context you need for this one. I had originally planned for this to be a three-part story, but as often happens to smarty-pants know-it-alls like myself, the narrative keeps expanding as I find out more stuff. But I promise to bring the narrative to a conclusion in this episode. It'll be a little longer than our usual episode up to now, but we'll take it all the way to the end. Okay, here we go. October 19th, 1795, was the grand opening performance of John Bill Ricketts' Circus and Art Pantheon, the classically columned and peak-roofed theater at the southwest corner of 6th and Chestnut Streets in Philadelphia. The company of equestrians and clowns and acrobats and other performers in Ricketts' ensemble was at its strongest level yet. Signor and Signora Spinacuta, as well as another Italian acrobat named Signor Reano, had returned to do the rope dancing, the equestrian feats, and to act in the skits. There were now two young American apprentices, Master Long and Master Hutchins. Francis Ricketts, John Bill's younger brother, had just turned 18 and was ready to take on solo equestrian and acrobatic tricks himself. Matthew Sully and his son were engaged to create and perform the pantomime sections of the show. To accompany the action, there was a band of professional musicians led by a Mr. Cullet on the violin. By November, the Sullys had added a new feature to the show, a pantomime entitled Harlequin Statue. From the title, we can judge that it was done in the typical London style of pantomime with a wand-bearing harlequin figure transforming or bringing to life inanimate objects. In December, as Christmas Day approached, advertisements for the show gave a precise description of the program, and once again I'll try to make my vocal impressions mirror the bold-faced fonts and exciting typefaces of a circus poster. This evening, 23rd December, will be brought forward a grand display of equestrian and stage performances by Mr. Ricketts and his celebrated company. First act, horsemanship. Second, stage performances. Third, equestrian exercises. Fourth, more stage performances. Fifth, lofty vaulting to conclude with a very humorous exhibition. The Chestnut Street Theatre across the street was evidently keenly feeling the competition of its rival, for it too was soon advertising acrobats, clowns, and feats of activity that it humorously and rather desperately entitled T'other Side of the Gutter. But this competition did not damage the success of Ricketts' shows. Performances continued regularly three days a week, and by April 15th of 1796, Ricketts' publicity in the local papers was getting quite elaborately phrased and specific. Quote, In the course of the pantomime will be displayed the following tricks and machinery. The dwarf outwitted, or harlequin-turned-market-woman. The magic box, or harlequin's aide de camp. The necromantic act, or the clown's flight in a balloon. 
the transforming chair, or the lover defeated. A grand change from the sea to a grotto of mirth and good fellowship. The entertainment of the evening to conclude with Goldsmith's Epilogue by Mr. Sully, in the character of Harlequin, who will, for that night only, take a flying leap into the crater of Mount Vesuvius at the moment of eruption. The fireworks by Monsieur's Amboise of Art Street. Well, as can be seen. The performances, especially by the talented Sully, were now dominated not just by horses and acrobats, but by inventive clowning and pantomimes and stagecraft with exciting narratives, as well as by considerable investment in stage effects. The clown's flight in a balloon may have recalled the January 1793 ascent of French balloonist Jean-Pierre Blanchard from the grounds of the Walnut Street prison, just a short distance away from where Ricketts had built his art pantheon. No doubt many in the Philadelphia audience remembered the event and appreciated the local reference. Ricketts was by this point a master at how to shape and provide his audience with pleasing spectacles. The show ended with a display of fireworks, a typical finale for equestrian shows since the days of Philip Astley, who we discussed in part two. Now, despite all the new theatrical display, the equestrian side of the business had by no means been neglected. Ricketts, always the star of the show, was now proudly exhibiting his powerful new horse, Corn Planter which Ricketts had named after the well-known, at the time, and well-respected Iroquois leader of the Seneca people. This new steed was so strong and nimble that it could leap over other horses, and although he admitted that many of the human company were not American, Ricketts would trumpet that at least the horses were native-born. The famous American horse, Corn Planter appears in the text of his every advertisement from this time onward. The shows continued well into spring, and it seems that Ricketts was willing to let his fellow performers take more of the comic sketches. The usual Taylor writing to Brentford skit was replaced at the finale by such pantomimes as The Triumph of Virtue or Harlequin in Philadelphia. But Ricketts was still the equestrian star of the most important parts of the show, with his younger brother acting as a secondary leading man. Reported the early chronicler of the American circus, Isaac Greenwood, quote, Among Mr. Ricketts' various feats at this time was his throwing a somersault over thirty men's heads and over five horses with their mounted riders. He would also ride two horses at full gallop and leap over a garter or ribbon twelve feet high, or ride the same horses, each foot on a quart mug standing loose on the saddles, and at times would mount on the shoulders of two riders, each standing on a separate horse, forming a pyramid fifteen feet high high, a feat never attempted before by any equestrian. Young Ricketts would leap over a spiked bar or ride around the ring, his head balanced on a pint mug resting on the saddle. He would also dismount, blindfolded, pick up a watch, and remount. The acrobatic display we have seen given at Astley's, viz. Uh, the Egyptian pyramids, was also introduced, only it is described in the playbills as described by Addison in the travels through Egypt. Close quotes. 
Greenwood's description once again confirms how much of Ricketts shows was derived from that of the London circuses. Like the Chestnut Street Theatre, he offered America a brand of cultural entertainment that was still very much a product of the empire from which it had just won its political independence. It seems to have been uniformly popular throughout the new nation, and indeed, upon conclusion of the Philadelphia season in the spring of 1796, Ricketts and his company departed once more for a summer tour of New York and New England. When they returned to Philadelphia again in October for the 1796-97 winter season, the company had grown even larger and its theatrical ambitions were even more impressive. There were now 18 performers in all with a great number of well-seasoned horses as well as carpenters, painters, and musicians. In addition, Ricketts had finally succeeded in recruiting the professional American dancer, clown, and comedian John Durang. One of the first American-born professional entertainers, the dancer, comedian, and actor, and puppeteer John Durang deserves a podcast episode of his own, and I think he's going to get one. He was the father of Charles Durang, an early historian of the American stage, and as I believe I've mentioned before, an ancestor of the playwright Christopher Durang. Those $25 a week offer of employment that Ricketts gave him, recalled Durang many years later, were, quote, were liberal and, and to my advantage. Fortune appeared to invite me. I, I waited on Mr. Ricketts and accepted his offer, close quotes. This new member of the company quickly improved his mastery of the equestrian skills so that he could now dance his favorite hornpipes on horseback while circling the ring. And this hornpipe dance must have been a real crowd pleaser, for Ricketts continued to supplement his equestrian acts with hornpipes and ballets and pantomimes from then on. Durang was featured frequently in these shows and was performing leading roles in two pantomimes that were added to the repertoire, entitled The Two Philosophers and Don Juan. Durang himself created a ballet he named The Country Frolic or The Merry Haymakers. And it is unfortunate that although we possess the enticing titles of these sketches, no text or detailed contemporary description of the action have as yet been discovered. The election of 1796 had taken place during the company's absence from Philadelphia, and Ricketts would have known that political change was in the air. Indeed, the whole company must have been very gratified when once again the outgoing President George Washington, growing weary of the cares of office and soon to retire to Mount Vernon, Virginia, sat in the audience of the circus on January 24, 1797. The incoming chief executive, John Adams, who had been known to attend the theater, but he certainly did not have Washington's love and long intimacy with horses. While resident in Philadelphia in February of 1796, Adams had complained by letter to his wife, Abigail, back in Massachusetts, that their visiting son, Charles, was perhaps too busy attending to the diversions available in the capital city. Quote, he goes to the Supreme Court two days and to Ricketts and the theater two nights, 
so that I have not so much of his company as I could wish. Close quote. As Adams' inauguration as president's approached in early March of 1797, he at least saw the interior of Ricketts Amphitheater and Art Pantheon when an elaborate farewell ball was given there in honor of the departing George and Martha Washington. Thousands of other people were also in attendance to say farewell to the couple, and as Washington himself handed in his wife, the applause was overwhelming. Everyone present in the circus building that evening would, of course, also have been well aware that another transition was soon approaching, for during the term of the incoming Adams administration, the capital of the United States was required to move south to the new city of Washington in the District of Columbia. In fact, Philadelphia would no longer even be the capital of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, whose seat of government was going to relocate to the city of Lancaster in 1799. Professional providers of popular entertainment, like Ricketts, who of necessity stayed keenly aware of shifting centers of cultural and political influence, were already making plans for additional tours and travels elsewhere than Philadelphia. For the meantime, though, Ricketts was determined to succeed in those places where he had already made significant investments of time and money. As the 1797 Philadelphia season continued, Ricketts poured even more resources into the theatrical elements of his shows. Reflecting growing public demand for sensation and melodrama, the scenarios and scenic effects became even more spectacular. A historical pantomime, again, borrowed from Astley's example, called The Death of Captain Cook, in which Durang played a Polynesian priest, featured not only war dances, battle scenes, and the murder of the British explorer in the Hawaiian surf, but also the hero's subsequent funeral. Quote, the whole to conclude with an awful representation of a burning mountain, the public was advised. The Philadelphian writing in a newspaper under the name of Spectator compared the circus's performance with those of the Chestnut Street's new theater, finding the theater's works stale compared to the exertions made by the manager of the amphitheater, Mr. Ricketts, who has unquestionably exhibited some of the most beautiful pantomime ever seen in America. It must be allowed, of course, that in accordance with the journalistic practices of the time, Spectator may have either been in the employ of Mr. Ricketts or might have been the horsemaster himself. Yet there were some definite warnings of trouble ahead for Ricketts. The population of Philadelphia was not growing sufficiently to regularly fill the large arena. Box office returns were less than Ricketts would have hoped, and the cost of maintaining a building of the lavish scenery and costumes and supporting the large troupe it pressed upon him. It was at this point that Ricketts purchased and exhibited George Washington's old horse, Jack, in the hopes of drawing in some more curious onlookers. As John Durang later wrote, these expenses, in addition to the considerable outlay for enlarging his company and maintaining the other establishments in New York, would have proved his ruin if he had to keep them going long. Nonetheless, Ricketts plunged ahead, offering the public a new ballet spectacle called Oscar and Malvina, or the House of Fingal. 
By seizing upon the widely popular Celtic poems of James Macpherson, Ricketts once again showed an awareness of a larger world literary culture and was acknowledging the new romantic spirit of the age. But his resources in both time and money grew thinner. Due to the pressures of running the business, he even stopped giving his morning riding lessons. For the Christmas season, Ricketts staged pony races within the circus building, the ponies rushing between the pit and the stage on ramps, with young Master Hutchins and Long riding upon their backs. All of this extra activity reveals an urgent need to draw crowds, and apparently it was to some extent successful. And it was perhaps during this busy sojourn in Philadelphia that Ricketts spent some of his scarce free time sitting for his portrait by Charles Gilbert Stuart, an artist who had made his name painting Washington and other eminent Philadelphians. The portrait of Ricketts remains frustratingly incomplete, with the head of the horse, most likely corn planter, only barely sketched. I've, I've put a copy of the painting on the website for the show, and the link is in the show notes. But still, the painting is forceful and compelling. The outline of his master's hands rests across the horse's muzzle. The muddy outline of a second horse wraps cozily around his neck, uh, perhaps a whimsical way for Stuart to apply a dark undercoat of paint needed for later overpainting and revisions. The face of the main subject, John Bill Ricketts, is still youthful and vigorous, with piercing dark eyes boldly meeting those of the viewer. Ricketts' strong nose, which can also be seen in earlier drawings and prints that we have of him, is emphatically rendered on the handsome face. Stuart presents a portrait of a man used to public regard and proudly confident of his own abilities. Ricketts' energy and ambition even took him once again beyond the borders of the United States. The dancer Durang and the horse Cornplanter would both accompany Ricketts' troop on an arduous journey to Canada in the summer of 1797, making the overland trek to Montreal and Quebec City. Meanwhile, Ricketts' brother Francis took a smaller selection of the company on an independent tour of Maryland and Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, the younger Ricketts proved to be a poor manager, and the receipts of the Canadian tour had to be counterbalanced by the losses that Francis incurred. In a further frustrating development, during the period of Ricketts' absence from Philadelphia, yet another British equestrian named Philip Laleson suddenly arrived in town and attempted to establish his own Philadelphia circus. Building for his company a domed amphitheater on 5th Street between Walnut and Spruce, not too far from Ricketts' Pantheon, Laleson even hired the Sully family away to provide the clowning and the pantomimes for his performances. And this show included a new equestrian pantomime about the horse of Alexander the Great, entitled The Death of Bucephalus. Perhaps to Ricketts' grim satisfaction, Laleson soon had to abandon his Philadelphia venture uh, when ticket sales disappointed. And further misfortune occurred when Laleson's new circus dome collapsed during a heavy winter snow. So, except perhaps for the wary managers of the Chestnut Street Theater gazing at the rivals from across the street, Philadelphia once again welcomed Ricketts home to his circus amphitheater on December 26th of 1798. 
and the residents of the city must have seen Ricketts' arrival as, yet again, a return to normal life because the yellow fever had once more heavily struck the city during the summer months and the autumn. Waiting for this new crisis to pass had in fact delayed Ricketts' return until after Christmas Day. By John Durang's account, the troupe was certainly happy to be back at its home base. Traveling to Montreal, Boston, and New York had been exciting, but these were arduous and exhausting trips. Yet there was still no time to waste as they prepared another new pantomime to offer to the Philadelphia public. Its title was Don Juan, or A Libertine Destroyed, a subject with great scenic possibilities, and the pyrotechnic equipment that had formerly served for representations of Mount Vesuvius could now easily serve for the required Mouth of Hell. Also, the Taylor of Brentford gag was rewritten in light of their recent experiences in the far north as the Canada Postboy's Journey to Quebec, with Durang now performing the part of the drunken rider whose journey is hilariously frustrated. After a few months' residence in the city, a tour of Virginia and Maryland followed. Ricketts also made a stop in the city of Washington in the District of Columbia, then under development and soon to replace Philadelphia as the national capital. No doubt while there he cast a shrewd eye on where he might build yet another circus amphitheater. The company once again took up residence at its home base in Philadelphia in October of 1799. However, disaster was about to strike. On December 17th, 1799, the very night the news of George Washington's death at Mount Vernon reached Philadelphia, Ricketts' Pantheon became an early casualty on the long list of Philadelphia theaters to be destroyed by fire. By several later accounts, the company's carpenter had left a candle unattended backstage where he kept his bottle, Durang acidly noted, during the evening's performance of Don Juan. And the rear of the building was quickly ablaze. The fireworks that were stored in the building exploded and added mightily to the conflagration, though it was fortunate that the horses, the costumes, and much of the scenery were rescued by the frantic members of the circus company. The Pantheon itself continued to burn, and eventually it and Oler's Hotel next door was completely destroyed. All of Ricketts' dreams and his years of his hard work literally went up in smoke. Stabling his horses and storing his equipment wherever he could find in the city and seeking public sympathy and assistance, Ricketts would afterwards publicly claimed in the Philadelphia newspapers that ruffians were seen on the roof of the circus that evening and had deliberately set the fire and offered a thousand-dollar reward. But no one ever stepped forward to claim it. The fire had just been bad luck. Ricketts was not insured, and it was a devastating setback from which he would never recover. In fact, Ricketts was beginning to have his doubts about the trouble and expense of maintaining the theatrical side of the circus business at all. Perhaps as someone whose deepest experience was working with animals, not with plays, Ricketts had always been somewhat uneasy with the theater world. 
John Durang would later remember a conversation he had with Ricketts at this low point in his fortunes. Quote, Mr. Ricketts was convinced by experience that an equestrian performance blended with a dramatic performance would never agree or turn out to advantage, but must evidently fall to ruin. The public's taste is only to be gratified to see a dramatic performance at a regular theater, where the manager's whole study and labor is devoted to bring it to perfection. Close quote. A circus must be well regulated and presented within its own sphere, Ricketts concluded, and afterwards his employment of clowns and pantomimes was much reduced. Wignall and Reinigal, for their part, were undoubtedly much relieved to be free of his competition. As we shall learn in the next episode, their Chestnut Street performance ensemble at what was locally referred to as the New Theatre went on to be the most eminent theater company in America of the time, earning eventually the affectionate sobriquet of Old Drury. John Durang, for his part, continued to stage ballets, comic plays, acrobatics, and musical evenings at the Old Theater on South Street and elsewhere in Pennsylvania for the rest of his career. He spent many years himself performing comic roles and dances with the Chestnut Street Company, though at a much reduced salary from his heady circus days. In April of 1800, John Bill Ricketts made a brief attempt to revive his fortunes and performed in the roofless arena of the absent Laleson troupe. But even Durang pronounced the resulting show gloomy. No doubt feeling that his days in the United States were finally over, Ricketts and his brother Francis left Philadelphia on the schooner Sally with ten of their horses and attempted to sail to Barbados to try their luck at producing shows for the rich plantation owners and other residents. They even stowed enough lumber on board to build a circus structure once they arrived, a necessary measure for the by then mostly deforested islands of the Caribbean. Sad to say, Ricketts' string of ill fortune continued, and the schooner Sally was captured by French privateers near the island of Guadeloupe. Amazingly, although all his property and his horses were stolen from him and sold to locals by the privateers, the ever-resourceful Ricketts managed to recover a few of the horses and even staged enough performances on the nearby island of Martinique to make enough money to charter another ship that would take him back to England. But this ship would prove to be his last. Evidently, it was an old and unreliable vessel, and it never arrived in England. It was presumed to have sunk in an Atlantic storm, along with all his crew and its passengers. John Bill Ricketts had given his last show, and after several years, his family in England would have him declared legally dead. The informal fellowship of English equestrians also mourned him. The fame of this person excelled all his predecessors, and it is said he has never been surpassed, a London circus performer wrote later, in sadness. Francis Ricketts, who had stayed behind in the Caribbean, would eventually return to Philadelphia. However, without his more talented and charismatic brother, he never managed to have further success in the business, and he soon sold off the empty lot 
where the art pantheon had once stood. As the years passed, uh, the memories of Ricketts' elaborate shows began to dim in Philadelphia. When the painter, Gilbert Stewart, died almost three decades later, an unfinished portrait of a handsome equestrian was found in his collection, and no one could even remember exactly who it was. Someone wrote in pencil at the bottom of the canvas, mistakenly, that the subject was surely the horse equestrian uh, Brechard, a, a friend of the painter. Eventually, scholars and devotees of circus history would correct the record. In the longer run, what can we say? Well, two particular elements of Ricketts' career seem to have done quite a lot to assure his lasting historical reputation. Firstly, his canniness in publishing and promoting his physical image in advertisements, prints, and portraits have meant that his features and form are often referenced in books and in online articles. And though many other types of itinerant performers were soon learning the benefits of promoting their image through printed advertisement, you know, oddly, few of his circus contemporaries seem to have done the same. So Ricketts stands out in that regard. Secondly, the allure of these two words, first and circus, has continued to guarantee his fame, at least among both the chroniclers of the circus and the historians of theater. The understandable mental associations with American traveling circuses of a later date has fueled a continuing historical interest in Ricketts. His career in America was much briefer than many other entertainers of his day, both legitimate and popular, but he is nonetheless the object of recurring fascination. An abundance of journalistic, scholarly, and general interest articles and books have been devoted to him. And, by the way, I am very grateful for all their work and the scholarship in helping me with my research for these episodes. Today, at the corner of 12th and Market Streets, at the base of the PSF building, for those of you that know Philadelphia, a blue metal historical marker, one of the many helpful metallic sentinels sprouting from the sidewalks of Philadelphia, stands to commemorate America's first circus building and America's first complete equestrian performance. However, I should point out, no marker stands at the former site of Ricketts Circus and Art Pantheon on 6th and Chestnut Street, where his most elaborate theatrical shows were presented to the public of the new nation. Nor is there a marker across the street where his rival, the stately and illustrious Chestnut Street Theater, once stood. Well, perhaps this is for the best. In the years to come, the city of Philadelphia would become the home of an enormous number of theater artists, Elaborate auditoriums and many popular entertainment venues, including circuses, even the kind that later ages would expect of a proper circus with the elephants and the lions and the clowns and the cotton candy. If all of these were to be awarded markers and signposts, well, the already cluttered and narrow sidewalks of the city of Philadelphia would become impossible for anyone to navigate. But in a sense, that's what I'm trying to do here. 
to make some sort of public record so that you can tap your friend or your grandkid or your business partner on the shoulder every time you come to the corner of 6th and Chestnut Street and say, hey, you know what used to be here? Well, let me tell you a story. Thanks for listening. Next episode, I'll turn to the tale of how Philadelphia and its theater was developing and changing in the earliest 19th century. Another circus act comes to town, and we see the founding and construction of what would eventually become the Walnut Street Theater, the oldest continuously operating theater in the English-speaking world. See you again soon on Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. Hi, everybody. A quick postscript, episode six here. My fact checkers have already been out, and I have some corrections to make. In episode three, I referred to George Washington's youngest step-grandchild as Custis, and of course that was his last name. His full name was George Washington Park Custis. His family seems to have called him Park, but among his friends he was known as Wash. The other thing is that in episode 5, I mentioned that Ricketts Circus was directly across from the State House, and that is correct, but I said that the wing of the State House was occupied by the U.S. Supreme Court, and that is incorrect. The U.S. Supreme Court was in the opposite wing on the east side. The west wing of the State House was occupied by the U.S. Congress, both the House and the Senate met there. But, um, my confusion was because in prints, as you can see on the website, is that that wing was also known as the courthouse because it later housed the municipal courthouse for Philadelphia. Finally, if you check the Apple podcast site and you can find our name, well then please do go ahead, leave some stars, leave a review. Nothing helps us more for getting this podcast better known and more widely shared. Thank you again. Bye-bye.